is one of those uh, phenomena which can be very comforting. You know, coming into a cold house on a cold night, like maybe last night, and uh, you know, huddled around the, the the hearth. Or fire can be very frightening. Sometimes, of course, it leads to disasters. The Great Fire of London. More recently, the Grenfell disaster. Where I live, in a, a first-floor apartment, there is actually no fire escape. If a fire broke out, I would have to break a window. The problem is that because of the particular style of window, it's all little small window panes set within solid wood. For that reason, I sleep with a hatchet under my bed, <laughs> just in case it would be required. Um, because what I would have to do is, if the fire broke down or broke out down below, uh, I would have to use my hatchet to smash through the, the wood to make a big enough gap for my expanding torso to actually fit through. Mind you, I also think that my hatchet could double up as a deterrent to anyone who might have the temerity to consider burglaring, burgling my apartment during the night. Anyhow, this morning we come to the final talk on the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. And Elijah is a man very much associated with fire. If we can think of Mount Carmel that we looked at before, how in response to Elijah's prayer, fire consumed the sacrifice, proving that Elijah's God, Yahweh, was the true and living God and not Baal. Fire was also in evidence when Elijah stood on Mount Horeb, waiting for the Lord to recommission him for his remaining years of service after Elijah suffered his sort of meltdown. And this morning, we'll see how fire is once again present as Elijah's ministry draws towards its end. And thus, I have entitled this final talk in the series, Elijah, Man of Fire. Our reading is going to be taken from 2 Kings. It's actually the first chapter of um, 2 Kings. Now, because of my failing eyesight, uh, I decided finally that the time has come. I have to change my Bible for when I'm speaking in church because the other one was just getting too difficult for me to read and I was having to hold it very, very close to me. Um, so I went into the evangelical bookshop and picked out this lovely blue leather-backed one which has got larger print. It was only when I came home and really started to read it that I realized that the paper is so thin on it that where there's bold print on the other side, the bold print comes through and it sort of has an effect like double vision. 
So I don't actually think I'm any better off than what I was before. <laughs> so I'm probably going to struggle again. But let's read together 2 Kings chapter 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal Zebub, the god of of Ekron. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied. And he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked him, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt round his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, 
This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? So I want to divide our final talk into two basic sections. Section one, we're going to look at the chapter that has just been read. And then in section two, I'm going to reference remaining biblical passages and verses which allude to Elijah. But section one then, Elijah and Ahaziah. So first, a little background. Who is this Ahaziah? Well, the answer to that is found in the tail section of the uh, previous chapter in the Bible to the chapter that I just read there. So if we'll just read these three verses. It's the last three verses then of 1 Kings chapter 22. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the ways of his father and mother and of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. So this Ahaziah that we've been reading about, he was the son of the terrible royal couple who have featured so prominently in this series, Ahab and Jezebel. And he had succeeded Ahab to the throne of Israel. But Ahaziah had suffered a nasty accident whilst resident at his palace in Samaria. He had fallen through the lattice of his upper room and injured himself, injured himself badly. Now, those of you with even a faint knowledge of myself will know that personal injuries is a favorite topic of mine. So I'm going to have to exercise real restraint this morning, although it just has reminded me that Reuben has promised to have a look at my bad knee. But Ahaziah's injury was obviously serious, serious, for it left him bedridden. And he's anxious to know whether he's actually going to recover. Is he going to get back, basically, uh, walking again? Now, maybe due to NHS waiting lists, Ahaziah sent messengers to Ekron in neighboring Philistia, who worshipped and served Baal-zebub. That was a joke, by the way, about the NHS. Evidently, it was because of his devotion to Baal that he sent messengers to Ekron. 
Beelzebub was known as the Lord of the Flies. And believe it or not, he was considered the patron saint of medicine. If you want to know more about that, you can ask Andrew or Jill later. The idea was that Isaiah's servants would consult the sort of the wise men of Ekron, who would be expected to receive a divine message from Beelzebub regarding Isaiah's prospects of getting back on his feet. But like his father Ahab, Isaiah had reckoned without Elijah. Elijah is instructed by the angel of the Lord to intercept Isaiah's servants en route to Ekron and through them to issue the Lord's rebuke of and judgment upon the king. Because Isaiah had chosen to consult Beelzebub in line with the idolatrous practices of his parents, things are not going to turn out well for him. Before very long, he is going to die. Elijah obviously made a big impression on the king's men. For rather than obey the king's orders and continue to Ekron, they obey Elijah's instruction and double back to the king's palace in Samaria. And when questioned by Ahaziah as to the reason for their abrupt return, they work up the courage to tell him his fatal prognosis and the reason why he is soon going to be six foot under. And when the king inquires who it was who issued his impending death notice, Ahaziah has no difficulty in recognizing the culprit from the man's unique fashion sense. Not everyone chose to dress in a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. This was the man that no doubt Ahaziah had heard a lot about from his parents, from his evil parents. This was Elijah the Tishbite. I was going to say that the king wasn't prepared to take things lying down, but given his physical condition, that's maybe not the best way of putting it. But he's determined to make Elijah pay for being the source of bad news. A military squad consisting of a captain and 50 men was dispatched with orders to seize Elijah and bring him back to the king. Locating the prophet sitting atop a hill, the captain barks out his orders to this man of God. But Elijah is in no mood to submit. He knows that the king isn't inviting him to the palace for cocktails and a gourmet meal. And as proof that he is indeed a man of God and a man of fire, Elijah calls down a heavenly inferno that consumes the captain and his not-so-merry men. The bedridden king was not, however, about to concede defeat. A second squad of 50 men is commissioned under a different captain. But lo and behold, they suffer the same fate 
incinerated by a fireball from above. Now, I believe it was Albert Einstein who defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Surely Ahaziah wouldn't make the same mistake a third time. But no, a third captain with another 50-strong squad is dispatched to seize Elijah. But this time, there would be a different outcome. Not due to Ahaziah, but rather because of the actions and attitude of this wise captain. You see, this captain doesn't repeat the curt demand of his forerunners, who had shown no respect for Elijah, and but simply barked out the king's orders. This third captain falls on his knees before Elijah. He acknowledges Elijah for the true man of God that he is. And he humbly pleads with Elijah for his own life and the lives of the 50 men that he has um, authority over. And interestingly, he refers to those 50 men as your servants, Elijah's servants. And so this time, there is a different outcome. Rather than end up with more crispy corpses, Elijah, instructed by the Lord, agrees to go with the captain and to present himself to the king. And when he sees Ahaziah, Elijah is fearless in repeating what he had previously said to the king's servants. Due to his idolatry, Ahaziah is not going to recover, but is going to die. And these were no idle words. For as we read in 1 Kings 22, verse 51, Ahaziah reigned for a mere two years in total. Two lessons emerge from this first section then. Number one is the obduracy of man, or if you prefer, the hardness of man's heart. The hardness of man's heart. Ahaziah is a classic example of someone who just simply refuses to repent. He wouldn't learn the lessons of yesteryear, but followed in the footsteps of his wicked parents. He sought the counsel of the followers of Beelzebub rather than any of Israel's true prophets. And there's not the slightest hint of repentance when he receives word from Elijah of his judgment. Indeed, all he is interested in is in arresting Elijah so that he might make him pay for issuing the, this fatal prognosis. Three times he seeks to have Elijah brought to the palace, and that not for an opportunity to acknowledge his own sin and to beg for forgiveness, but rather to do away with this troublesome prophet. And it must be said that today, many men are just like Ahaziah in terms of their obduracy, the hardness of their hearts. 
despite the evidence of the Lord's goodness and mercy, they refused to recognize him as God, preferring to continue in their sin. And when faced with the gospel message, what do they do? They harden their hearts. They just won't repent. How sad, how tragic, for they're thereby consigning themselves to a lost eternity in which they'll suffer the consequences of their obduracy, their intransigence, and they're effectively what they're doing is despising God's grace. But then we have the second lesson, which is, in contrast, hope for the repentant. In marked contrast to Isaiah stands the third captain. He has seen what has happened to his predecessors and their men, and he has no wish to suffer the same fate. He knows that Elijah is a genuine man of God and that Elijah is not someone you mess about with. His only hope is to beg for mercy. He may himself be a man of authority, but that counts for nothing before Elijah and the God whom Elijah serves. And the captain humbles himself, beseeching Elijah to spare his own life and that of his men. And that is what happens. You see, God is a merciful God. And God will always forgive repentant sinners. That's what we've been celebrating this morning with the breaking of bread. Assuming, of course, that man's repentance is sincere. Last time we saw about Ahab going through a spell of his life where there was this sort of mock repentance, this shallow repentance. It was only the appearance. He hadn't genuinely repented of his sin. The Bible is categorical in affirming that God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, and that he's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The offer of salvation is open to all, which of course makes it then so much more tragic when men and women refuse to repent because the offer is before them while they've got life and breath in their lungs. But we need to, to move on. I've got to report back to Patrick and Jeff and say that it didn't go over half past, so I have to crack on. The second section is Elijah's departure and reappearance. Chapter 2 of 2 Kings records the story of Elijah's departure from this world and fittingly for a prophet associated with miracles. It is a miraculous one. Alongside Enoch, Elijah is the only figure that we read about in Scripture who has thus far been translated to heaven without undergoing physical death. A.W. Pink writes, Miracle had attended him wherever he had gone, and a miracle brought about his departure from the scene. And Theodore Epp comments, He suddenly appeared, and he suddenly went away. And verse 11 of 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us exactly what happened. 
as they, that is Elijah and his anointed successor, Elisha, were walking along and talking together. Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Note, of course, the twin reference to fire, Elijah's trademark. This was the last that Elisha would see of Elijah. Indeed, Elisha is pestered by a company of prophets who want him to send out a search party to try to find where has Elijah been taken to. And that search party return after three days and report no sightings of Elijah's whereabouts. He had simply vanished. Henceforth, the mantle of Elijah's ministry would literally be borne by Elisha. And maybe someday in the uh, someday in Castlereagh Fellowship, we'll look at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. But as for Elijah, he had gone onward to his heavenly reward. But among the Jewish nation, the expectation began to form that Elijah was going to return to earth. Indeed, the prophet Malachi, the last to prophesy before the so-called 400 silent years between the Testaments, he had declared regarding the time of the Lord's judgment upon this world, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. It became the practice of Jewish households that at a child's circumcision, a seat was placed for Elijah. Whilst at the annual Passover meal, wine was placed for Elijah to drink. And in the birth and ministry of John the Baptist, many at first believed that Elijah had actually returned. The angel Gabriel had told Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that his miracle son, born to his wife Elizabeth, well beyond normal childbearing age, would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This seemed to be the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. Moreover, when John launched his public ministry, his coming from the desert, his strange dress sense, John wore clothes made out of camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his fiery call to Israel to repent of their sin all combined to reinforce the impression that John the Baptist was in reality Elijah come again. Indeed, the priests and Levites asked John explicitly, are you Elijah? Of course, John the Baptist wasn't literally Elijah 
come back from the dead. But as Jesus testified in Matthew 17, verses 11 to 12, he was a partial fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. John was the one who would call the nation to repentance in advance of the Messiah's, Jesus's arrival. Moreover, the actual Elijah was to make a reappearance in history. For along with Moses, Elijah appeared on an unnamed mountain at Jesus's transfiguration. Moses, the man associated with the law, Elijah, the prototype of the prophets. And I'll just add as well, some theologians believe that Elijah will make a further reappearance in human history. Some see him as being one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11. But I feel underqualified to comment on such an opinion. I'll leave that for the experts and for those who offer us our wisdom, their wisdom rather, on the internet. But I do want to finish with a third lesson, a third and final lesson, and that is this. God will always honor his servants. God will always honor his servants. Elijah was a bold man of God. He was a man of prayer, a man of righteousness, and he served the Lord in the official capacity of prophet for its reckoned between 15 and 20 years. He wasn't perfect. As we saw, you know, James talks about the fact that he was made of the same stuff as us. And he did have his episode of despair caused by disillusionment and burnout. But overall, we ought to esteem Elijah. And certainly Elijah is esteemed by God himself as evidenced by his appearance alongside Moses at the transfiguration. And God will always honor those who are faithful in their service to him. Let us never think that our service for God is unnoticed or inconsequential. Of course, for those who suffer for Christ's sake, and we'll be thinking very much about them next week, there's going to be a huge eternal dividend for them. But even the smallest acts of service that you and I may offer for the Lord, they are noticed by God, and they will be rewarded by God in eternity. We are going to receive rewards. And even those who go through episodes of spiritual barrenness are not cut off from the Lord's rewards. You and I are not going to rise to the height of Elijah. Sorry if that disillusions you. But we can all say with confidence that our God is the rewarder of the faithful. And you see, when it comes to the Bema, that is the judgment seat of Christ, when the people of God will be gathered before Jesus Christ to receive reward or loss of reward, not loss of salvation, loss of reward, depending upon how we have lived for Christ now. Not one of us is going to feel shortchanged. 
Not one of us is going to say to Jesus Christ, but you didn't know about what I did there. No, he will know perfectly with his omniscient eyes and he will reward us perfectly, commensurate with our service and devotion to him. And on that note, our series on Elijah finishes. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.